Hello, you're listening to episode number five of Russia Unwrapped with me, Francis Scar. For this edition of the podcast, I was joined by Anastasia Gerasimova, an architectural designer and researcher with expert knowledge of the Russian bathhouse, more commonly known as the Banya. But before we get going, I'd also like to mention and recommend Ethan Pollock's fantastic book, Without the Banya We Would Perish, which I relied on extensively when putting this episode together. Any foreigner who has been invited by a Russian to their banya knows well that there is far more to the experience than simply having a good wash. And throughout Russia's turbulent history, in one form or another, the banya has remained an unwavering fixture of life. As we'll discover, for centuries the banya has reflected the social realities of the day, and it remains just as culturally significant in our age, the 21st century, as ever. Over 400 years before the birth of Christ, the Greek historian Herodotus wrote about the Scythians, a people living on the steppe north of the Black Sea, that is, today's Ukraine and southwestern Russia. He describes with awe an unfamiliar steam bath used by the locals to wash themselves. And something resembling a banya also appears in the tale of bygone years, or as it's more commonly known in English, the Primary Chronicle, a record of the medieval polity of Kievan Rus, to which today's Russian state traces its origins. In the work, which is attributed to an 11th century monk known as Nestor, St Andrew travels to the lands of the East Slavs, and later, having arrived in Rome, relays his impressions. He says he witnessed locals lashing their bodies with branches in wooden bathhouses on a daily basis, and thinking nothing of this self-torment. These branches are known as veniki, and remain a fixture in the banya centuries later. Russians typically use veniki to massage themselves and to direct steam from the top of the banya down onto the body, thus intensifying the experience and boosting circulation. The history of banya starts from the oven uh, because initially people were sort of baked in it. I mean, they were heated before getting washed. So banya is derived from the oven and then it got separated from the housing and became its own separate entity. At first, banyas didn't have any pipes or ducts and they were called black banyas because all the steam was going inside and they were black inside. But then there was a hypothesis that the pipes came to Russians only after Tatar-Mongolian raids. And this technology was derived from a Tatar construction of Chimu. Just now, Anastasia referred to the Tatar-Mongolian raids. This was a period which began in the 13th century when Kievan Rus fragmented and the descendants of Genghis Khan invaded what is today's Russia and other parts of Europe further west. They would leave an indelible mark on the East Slavs before the Grand Duchy of Moscow, or Muscovy, finally managed to throw off their yoke in 1480. The chimneys which allowed smoke to escape the banya are just one purported element of this legacy. In Russian society, the banya has always been seen as a source of physical and mental rejuvenation, but its original incarnation was also associated with multiple rites of passage. And if we go back to the primordial times, banya is a sort of temple because it has a lot of rituals that are rooted into this type. For instance, if we would compare the church and the banya, we would see a lot of similarities in the rituals themselves. For instance, that people were going to banya before giving birth and people were 
actually born in Banya. They were going to Banya before getting married, before the conception. Also, they were washing bodies in Banya before the burial. So it was really a, a transitional space where every important point of your life is going through. And therefore, I think that maybe in Russia, there is a, some sort of a genetical memory of that. And that is why people still going before the new year, for instance. Somehow this ritual really stayed in, in urban or rural territories. Banyas began life in the countryside, but under the aegis of Peter the Great, the basic technology would be transposed to the urban context of his new capital, St. Petersburg. The first time Banya actually started to appear in the urban context was because of the Peter the Great. He loved to attend Banya himself, and uh, his own Banya didn't differ from those of any Russian peasant, because Banya was the place that is not hierarchical and the place where titles and ability was not playing any role. Peter's support for the Banya was also driven by financial expediency, though. Fully aware of its popularity among Russians, he identified an opportunity to top up his imperial coffers. The emperor spun a whole web of taxes and red tape that commercial Banya operators would have to navigate, thus generating valuable income for the state. Initially, Peter's Banyas reflected the relative equality of the countryside, where the vast majority of people were simply serfs. But once transplanted to cities, they would change under the influence of Imperial Russia's rigid social divisions, which were felt more keenly in urban environments, where interaction between different class groups was much greater. When Banyas started to appear in the urban context, at first they were not gender divided, uh, and they started to be divided in 1743, but they became more internalized. If before Banyas were always placed next to the rivers, and the whole ritual was about going from their overheated room to the cold water, when they started to appear in the cities, of course, they were mainly placed next to canals in St. Petersburg or next to rivers as well. But somehow they started to go deeper in the urban fabric in a very vernacular way. If you think about it, that Bani is completely not hierarchical typology because nudity is about collective presence and uh, equality the place where you basically remove all the layers that differentiate your status. So Banyas are this kind of free space in that sense. But then they started to introduce hierarchies because uh, in Banyas in 18th and 19th century, they started to be divided in classes and each class had different typology of inner space of the Banya. So basically they were differentiated by the level of comfort, the level of luxury, and also the level of privacy that you can gain in the Banya. In the second half of the 18th century, under Catherine the Great, the Banya's complex cultural significance began to be contested more than ever. Inspired by new developments in public health, physicians from Western Europe saw the Banya's potential for improving hygiene and reducing the spread of infectious disease. But for most Russians, who were still illiterate serfs tied to the farmsteads of their feudal masters, such abstruse ideas carried little currency. For them the banya held an entirely different meaning. For centuries, they had used it to revive themselves after a hard day of physical labour out in the fields, and it was also a focal point for rituals and social interaction. But not health, at least not in the modern understanding of the word. The idea that keeping oneself clean in the banya might increase resilience in the face of disease 
would only gain traction much later. Its most striking manifestation would come under the Bolsheviks after the October Revolution of 1917. For these revolutionaries, the Bani had dual importance. First, they hoped that the universal provision of washing facilities could be used to counter the deterioration in public health provoked by the Civil War and its accompanying disease and famine. Indeed, Lenin himself once asked, how can you run an economy when 70% of the people suffer from typhus? Second, and more fundamentally to the Bolshevik project, they believed the Banya had a role to play in the construction of their new society and the creation of the Novy Sovietsky Chelovyak, the new Soviet man, who would put the collective above himself. They took the very traditional type banya, they blowed it up to the scale of a palace of culture, and they just called it the banya, you know. It was like a collective utopia on such an intimate level that the government interferes with its citizens on a, such an intimate level, like bathing, like a personal hygiene. So I think to force people to do it collectively in such scale to make basically the conveyor out of this procedure, I think that would help this collectivism and communism to actually put the roots. So I think Bani indeed helped with that because it was traditional, because you could use that word, because you could sort of refer to that ritual, but actually change it. I believe that it was a very sneaky thing to use Banya as a kind of helping to build communism. The best surviving example of avant-garde banyas built during the early years of the Soviet Union is St. Petersburg's Kruglaya, or Round Banya, which was designed by architect Alexander Nikolsky. Under Stalin years later, Nikolsky would be celebrated for building the stadium that Zenit Football Club would call its home from 1950 to 1992. The Kruglaya Banya is enormous and was designed to process 4,000 people a day. So what kind of an experience did it provide? In Soviet times, buyers were really more factories. I mean, they had the aesthetics of factories and they, the ritual itself became very functional and utilitarian and it had its own rhythm. For example, people in USSR, they were queuing all the time. <laughs> they were queuing, for example, for food because there was a deficit of produce and they were queuing for hospital to get treatment and they were also queuing in banyas. And then when you get to the banya, they would be queuing to fill up their bowl with water and then they would be queuing to a heating room and then they start to queuing naked and that has a completely different, I think, meaning to that and then the whole ritual was also very strictly that it is only one hour per person and uh, each person uses around four square meters and that they would be all with this prefabricated aluminium balls for water i think that the whole thing was uh, like a production conveyor that you come and the whole thing is very mechanized and standardized and you're just waiting to be processed by this hygienic machine <laughs> which is called banya but of course, not all banyas used by the new Soviet authorities were designed and built from scratch. Many Tsarist-era facilities were modified to fit the new authorities' conception for banyas. Very interesting thing that I've noticed in the archives. You can take the archival drawings of banya and can learn all the history of the country from this type. When I looked at the drawings from the imperial time, 
I've seen that in the 1917-1919 that all the walls that were separating different hierarchies were basically removed, crossed with the lines, and it was all written there, collective space, collective washing space, collective dressing, collective steam room. So it, you can see the deconstruction of ideology on the drawing of the banya, and th that was amazing. Other elements associated with the banya would also assume new forms under Soviet rule. For example, Anastasia drew a comparison between Banik, a mythological banya spirit in Russian folklore, and Moidadir, a character in a Soviet children's book, who later became the protagonist of a popular cartoon on TV. As well as Banya, the figure of Banyak also got transformed in the Soviet times. Banyak is a, is a spirit that lives in the Banya, and well, you, you need to be quiet or you need to also give him some treats in order to calm him down because he can be aggressive. Banyak is important because, first of all, it is an anthropomorphication of an architectural type. And the other thing is that he actually invites other spirits, like the spirit of the house, and he also <laughs> invites uh, spirits from the forest, from the lakes. So basically, he ties together the human being and the nature, and he combines all those spirits and, and gathers them in the body. And that's why it is, in a way, this uniting of people with, with the natural spirits. Banik is said to be able to cast spells, and according to Russian folklore, every third or fourth turn in the banya belongs to him. The cartoon character I mentioned a few moments ago emerged in the 1920s as part of efforts to educate Soviet children about the importance of good hygiene. Moidadir, whose name literally means wash to holes, is an anthropomorphic washstand, an item of furniture that died out with the advent of indoor plumbing. He embodies an early 20th century understanding of hygiene in the same way that Banik embodied the rituals of the rural banya. Just as the Banya found itself at the centre of Lenin's revolutionary Bolshevism, it would also fail to escape the excesses of Stalin's rule. In fact, under the Soviet Union's longest-serving leader, the fate of the Banya would be emblematic of the difficulties faced in implementing a planned economy. Perennial attempts to over-fulfil the plan in heavy industry and an obsession with costly so-called mega-projects led to other sectors becoming woefully neglected. State funding set aside for Banyas dried up and items such as sponges, soap and washing tubs became rare commodities. Neither did Banyas entirely escape the worst of Stalin's purges in the late 1930s. A whole host of party apparatchiks and regional officials were shot after being accused of allowing public health to deteriorate by neglecting the construction and maintenance of Banya facilities. Jumping forward to the 1990s, yet again we can see the Banya acting as a microcosm of wider social realities. Under socialism, for better or worse, Banyas were subject to the bureaucratic whims of the state. This guaranteed support and promotion via public health propaganda campaigns. 
But as the state's wider role in society diminished following the Soviet collapse, so did its ability to delineate the specific role that the banya should play in people's lives. The banya acquired many qualities that it had not had during the Soviet period. As capitalism and consumerism took hold, leisure and individualism gained precedence over hygiene. In the 90s, uh, you can also see how the historical change, how the change of the regime was reflected on the banya, because basically there are started to appear small sauna rooms with a very multifunctional entertainment spaces, and they had a lot of games like billiard or uh, pole for striptease or different uh, entertaining programs, and they were all, all commercial, of course. And that also shows this independence, the collapse of USSR, the appearance of Russian mafia, the appearance of capitalism. You can also see how this type changes again, and then it became even more vernacular because those kind of rooms, they started to appear completely everywhere, like sometimes in the residential blocks, in the garages, in the shopping malls. So it became a very, very much spreaded, but also very underground typology. Well, of course, today, a lot of banyas are privatized and they're restored. But then they're not as popular because most people go to the sports centers and there is this one steam room that they call banya, and that seems to be enough. And obviously people, as they go to their dacha, which is a summer house where they have their own banya. But yeah, in the collective ones, there are a few banyas in Moscow and St. Petersburg that indeed continue to cultivate it as a culture. But I must say I've noticed the not very healthy tendency that there are, for example, more male days than female days for attendance. And also that the male part in banyas normally has more functions or more space or more historically preserved space. But you can even see now that there are still a lot of gender-related issues and it is also can be read in banyas today. The age we live in is often considered the age of postmodernity, and postmodernism helps us to understand today's banya. The theory rejects grand narratives that claim to offer a single overarching explanation for the world around us and its contents. And indeed, today's banya is diverse and hard to pin down. Today, all different types of banya are present in the Russian context. And I think that's the fascinating thing about it, that we use banyas from different historical types and we just differentiate them by various reasons. For example, uh, when there is a celebration of birthday or a bachelor's night out or a girl's night out, everyone goes to the saunas from the 90s. And that's the sort of party banyas that we have. When there is a shortage of the hot water in summer, which often happens in Russia, then we go to the Soviet or even banyas from the imperial time that are still preserved in the cities. And then if we go to Dacha, which is a summer house, then we use this kind of primordial type of banya from which uh, the whole history of banyas basically starts. But the banya's diversity goes beyond its purposes and architectural forms. For each individual, a trip to the banya represents a different kind of experience too. For many Russians, the banya is about physical and mental rejuvenation, and this age-old notion is captured in dozens of proverbs and aphorisms. You might hear, в банье мыться заново родиться, to wash oneself in the banya is to be born again. Or, Banya mait vtaraya, kosti raspar tiela papravit. The banya is a second mother. She'll steam your bones and fix your body. You go through a very strong contrast of temperatures and, um, and this tension that gets so high and that gets relieved. I mean, so many people compare it to, to being born again because it's incredible feeling. And 
also about this removing the layers from skin, I think is also important. And it exists in so many cultures. Like I think Banya is in many ways closer to Turkish hammam rather than sauna, for instance, because in Turkish hammam, there is also this ritual when you actually, you lie down and someone is doing that for you or you're doing it for yourself, doesn't matter. But the important thing is that you actually sit and wash yourself and you try to remove all this dirt. And it's like really spending time with yourself and focus on your own bodies, talking with your own body. I think that's very valuable. Another popular saying is this, в бане генералов нет. In the banya, there aren't any generals. It captures the inherent egalitarianism of nudity. In the banya, bathers are stripped down to their bare humanity. As Anastasia mentioned earlier, this was of fundamental importance for the early Soviet authorities as they sought to remould society. But this collectivism and fraternity is also something which many pine for in today's Russia, a country marred by profound social inequality. When you sit in the public banya, there are those benches on which everyone is sitting and everyone is washing themselves. And then if you need to wash your back, you just ask someone who sits next to you, even if you don't know them, they would wash your back and you wash backs of each other. It's a very delicate thing because you can turn with your back only to your friend. You cannot turn with your back to an enemy. It's about this trust. That's why I think it's kind of very safe space. And, and another, I think, important aspect, and I think also why Banyas would continue to be popular is because it's the only free space in terms of internet. <laughs> I mean, it's the only free zone from all of this constant flow of information because it's humid and you cannot use gadgets. The Banyas' ability to outlive every regime has allowed it to acquire an apolitical quality for those who seek it. And in the vacuum of meaning that followed the Soviet collapse in the 1990s, the banya became an object of national pride, something seen as inherently Russian that transcended the political and social chaos of the time. Looking to the future, this longevity reassures many Russians, including Anastasia. I'm not even worried. I just know that it's going to be there because it's been through so many historical periods. It got transformed so many times. And, you know, I'm an architect researcher, so architecturally banya changes drastically all the time. It's basically not even an architectural type in this sense. It's rather a genre because you cannot even trace through the architectural elements except of the uh, basically steam room. Everything else is changing. <laughs> and the steam, steam room in, in terms of sizes, well, not that much because there are restrictions about the amount of square meters you can heat up to certain temperatures. But I mean, apart from that, everything else is changing. And, um, and it always survives. And I believe that with whatever regime is coming, it's going to be there. It's just going to adapt. That was Anastasia Grasimova telling me about the profound social and cultural meaning of the Russian banya. Join me again next time for a new episode of Russia Unwrapped. Mm-hmm.